I really love Christmas time. I don't know about the rest of you, but uh, there are a number of reasons why I do. But in particular, um, I know that there's a lot of criticism that goes on at Christmas about all the commercialism and all of that. But frankly, in so many ways, it's the commercialism and all that goes with that that keeps this as a high point in the culture. And, and I, I, when I turn on the radio, secular radio, and I hear the great theology of the Christmas carols being played in the ears of the secular, I think to myself, thank you, God, for this amazing opportunity. It's all in how we use it, really. And uh, so I, I'm kind of, because otherwise it goes the way of Easter, which is quickly becoming buried and buried and and uh, on uh, our Christmas presentations, it's really a lot easier for you to invite friends and come out, to come out to our presentations and, and to fill this place up four times at Christmas time. Easter is increasingly harder and harder because there isn't that connection with the culture. I'm, I'm freely willing to admit that the culture has buried and swallowed up and, and tries in every way to, to cause the message to disappear. But it's God's people's opportunity to bring the message back out to the surface. We have this opportunity to do it and to, uh, to really u- utilize this time. So I really would encourage you. We have another couple of productions uh, today, and uh, this is a great opportunity. I'm, I'm always excited seeing my neighbors put the lights out in their house and they realize, do you realize what you're really celebrating and advertising? The light of the world who's come in to shine in the hearts, of darkened hearts of people. So... Uh, I'm one who uh, really likes to make this season um, a real emphasis because I think it's a great opportunity for us to get the gospel message to people. And um, let's keep doing that. Let's work hard on it. We we live, of course, in an interesting time where I really fully believe that the people who are lost and don't know Christ live in this incredible paradox. And what I mean by that is they... um, they are continually inundated by the, uh, the, the media elite who, who try in every way to strip away the divine from, uh, from the, the, uh, the marketplace and, and try to, to explain away everything that is high and holy and try to make explanation for why it's all natural and how it all happens. Uh, but on the other side of the, the spectrum, um, they are uh, people who are... are um, fully committed to their personal rights and entitlement, in particular, around the whole notion of what God owes them. Particularly when health, come, health crises come along or, or when death comes, they, they're always looking to God to say, hey, you need, you need to help me. That's your job. You need to come in. But at the same time, they're wrestling with all of these ideas that they, they don't really believe in God because everything can be explained away. But, but in this crisis time, they really need God. And so they live in this, this strange paradox that tears at them. And um, we, because of the proliferation of the miraculous naysayers that are continually shrinking the wow factor of God, we have, we have this generation of people growing up that believe that nature is all there is. And combined with that, of course, there's a an agenda to increase the awe factor of man and his accomplishments and all that he's done. Now, some of you wouldn't be old enough uh, to remember this, but but when you're as old as me and and another birthday rolls around, you remember the old days. And and I remember this show, TV show that I used to like back in the old days called Here Come the Seventies. Anybody remember that show? Few are willing to admit it. 
you had to be really cognizant in the late 60s to really be excited about that show. And we were all hyped up about the 70s and all of, it was a, pro, it was a program that showed all of the uh, ideas that man was coming up with and all the amazing accomplishments that were coming in the 70s. Can you imagine the 70s? But it was a, a time of, of really increasing the focus on man's accomplishments and and, and that has increased to pick up, uh, that, that increasingly has picked up momentum as the years have gone by. God and all that is divine and great is being reduced and, and constantly in, in, in the in media, Time Magazine, McLean's Magazine, particularly at this season, you know, they try to explain away all of the miraculous. So God is being reduced and man is being elevated and, uh, and so the, the awe on man is, is the issue until, it's interesting, you have the idea where um, nature is all there is, and so the, the companion idea with that, of course, is that we're, in free, we're free, therefore, to indulge our natural desires. It just makes sense, right? If nature is all there is, it should be quite logical that, that mankind is free to indulge their natural desires at will. Until, uh, oh, for instance, a professional athlete decides to be somewhat... Uh, immoral and the infidelity in his marriage. And then all of a sudden, there's a moral outrage. Suddenly, all of the people who have tried to explain away that that nature is all there is, and, and therefore, logically, mankind should be able to indulge his natural desires, suddenly, there are some moral boundaries. When um, immorality or such as that uh, infringes upon my life, then suddenly I, I want some sort of moral boundary. And so it, it's this whole be big, believe small agenda that is all around us causes a lot of grief and a lot of confusion. And I think the simple truth is that the people outside of Jesus Christ are really, really confused. And they're looking for something that makes sense something that's consistent, something to believe on that's bigger than themselves. That's what I think. And so that um, brings me to the, uh, the story of, uh, of Christmas. Would you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1 this morning? It's interesting. A few years back, Larry King, the uh, CNN talk show host, was asked if he could choose one person from all of history to interview. Who would that person be? Do you know what his answer was? It was Jesus Christ. He said, of all the people in all of history, if there was one person I could interview, I'd like to interview Jesus Christ. And the interviewer, the interviewer who was interviewing him went on to say, and what one question would you ask him? And here's what he said. I would like to ask him if he was indeed virgin born. The answer to that question would define history for me. Can you imagine? Well, I want to tell you the story. Uh, Turn to Luke chapter 1 this morning. And uh, I want to read uh, 30 verses this morning to you. You can't break this thing up. You just have to put it together. So fashion your your seatbelts and and let's go. Verse 26, and we're going to roll through here. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. 
Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. You believe that? Barely, apparently. We need to get some wow factor in here. Well, we'll work on it. That's where we're going this morning. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. And the angel left her. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea where she entered Zachariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him. From generation to generation... He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. You know, as I look at this particular account of the birth announcement of Christ and the the great song that Mary utters from her heart, it, it seems to me that the degree to which a person really knows God is directly proportionate to how much they are wowed by the wonder of God and at the same time humbled at the honor of being called to serve Him. I think that's what, as I read through that, and if I were to summarize what what really leapt out at me from this incident, this account, it is that. And I want to say it to you again because I I think it's really important. This is a test, really, a, a test of your own heart, a test of everyone else's heart who claims to know and love Christ. The degree to which a person really knows God is directly proportionate to how much they are wowed by the wonder of God while at the same time being humbled at the honor of being called by that same God to serve Him. 
Father, I, as we spend a few moments in this really beautiful text of Scripture that is so filled with wonder and amazement, Lord, I just pray that in a fresh way you would humble us and at the same time would we just have a sense of awe and wonder in our hearts all over again. Lord, I pray that you might make us childlike this morning, really. As if for the first time we are just wide-eyed, mouths wide open, hearts open, hands outstretched and realize, wow, you are such a great God. And we are so privileged to know you and for you to know us and to love us and to call us to serve us. Father, um, penetrate our hearts by your Holy Spirit that we might be filled to overflowing because this is a really important season. The people around us, our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers, the people we meet in the marketplace, they're being inundated by the good theology of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, I know that their ears are stopped and their eyes are closed and their heart is hard. But your word is going forth in song. And you can open up their hearts. You specialize in that. Lord, I pray that there might be a great harvest this Christmas season. And I pray, Lord, that you might, first of all, build the enthusiasm in our own hearts and a sense of quiet humility as well, of dependency on you. Combine, Lord, to say that we really know who you are, that others might know you too. I pray this in Jesus' name. Can we look at some wow factor realities, first of all, that are found here? It's not woe, it's, it's wow. You can take this in and marvel, or you can try to explain it away. That's what's happening all around us. It's a man by the name of Richard Dawkins, a godless man who has written a, at least one book. He's written several books, but one of the books he's called, he calls The God Delusion. It's a horrible, horrible work by a man whose heart is horribly hard and he thinks he's brilliant which is the sad thing because of only the fool says in his heart there is no God, right? So I, I have no recourse scripturally but to classify him as quite opposite of wise and intelligent. He, he writes, there's, there's a, he writes a, with this kind of wording. The space-time continuum is closed, brokering no intervention from a deity. Therefore, miracles never happen by definition. Therefore, God does not exist. Dawkins, um, along with all of the other allegedly intelligent atheists, make the same mistake over and over again with their circular reasoning, they assume the very thing they intend to prove, which is absolutely illogical and incorrect. If you assume the space-time continuum is closed with no proof, then you can suggest that there can be no divine intervention because there's no 
cause for divine intervention. There could not possibly be a God who exists. But what if there is a God outside of time and outside of space who is, in fact, the one who created it all? Doesn't it, doesn't it change everything? And I want to show you a few things that are quite amazing in this whole nature of the, the gospel message and the coming of Christ and the announcement of Christ. I just want to give you a quick survey of the many possible things that could be shown to you in scriptures of, of what was necessary in, in the Messiah, in the character, in the nature of the Messiah who was promised. And, and I want to start at the very beginning of the Bible and, and reel through for a few moments. And I want you to come with me, back to, way back to Genesis chapter 3, for instance. Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve fell to sin and the rejection of God's goodness to them. And then there is a pronouncement on the man and on the woman and on the serpent. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, it, it, there's an, an amazing statement made there, amazing, amazing declaration and description that is quite startling. This verse is... Um, a description, of course, of the enmity that's going to be between Satan and the powers of God uh, against those who will follow Satan and those who will follow God. Uh, we call this verse, in, in fact, the Proto-Evangelium. It is the, the first glimpse or first evidence of the gospel message that comes through. In this verse it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, in other words, between the serpent, between the... Satan and the woman, and between your offspring and hers, it says in the NIV, but in the original language, it says, and the woman's seed. It's really distressing that the NIV in their translation thought that they should take that out, because that is a very, very amazing statement. Normally, when you are describing throughout Scripture the generations to come and the descendants that will follow, you describe it by the seed of man. To say here, the woman's seed, is quite an amazing description. It leaves us, of course, as we read back with no doubt to what was trying to be stated here, but the look forward is to suggest that, that there in some fashion... The coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Redeemer, the one who will save people, the one who will, will defeat the powers of Satan, is going to come to pass in some way with a minimization of the, uh, of the, uh, the work of a human male. The emphasis here is on the fem female human, the seed of woman. It's quite an amazing thing. If we go over a few more chapters in terms of our our search and the spotlight of who the Messiah was to be or the characteristics and nature of the Messiah. In the call of Abram, in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, it says there, I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The coming Messiah, the one who would rescue people, the one who would bless the nations would come through the descendant of Abram, who would be a Jew, that's why Mary in her song could say, Blessed is the Lord who has kept his promise to the descendants of Abraham forever. So he was to 
be a focus was to be on a, a, a birth that would emphasize the seed of woman. He, he was to come from the, the nation of, of Israel, the Jewish people. In, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, it gives us some more details about this Messiah and his, the nature of his background. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, verse 12, 13, I'm going to read the, the bit of verse 11. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. You know how long that is? To be a king forever? And so he is to be, the focus is to be a seed of woman. The focus is on Jewish. The focus now is on of the house of David, the royal lineage, which, by the way, the angel Gabriel said to Mary, you are the one, and this one is coming from the royal house of David. And when she asks the question of the angels, she says, how will this be since I'm a virgin? She doesn't say, how will this be since I'm not part of the line of David? So clearly she has already accepted that, well, it's true, I am of the lineage of David. Then as we move through, we find another startling couple of prophecies into Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Two amazing and startling realities here. This Messiah will come through a virgin and he will be called God with us. So we have the emphasis on seed of woman, uh, not much discussion about human father. We have Jewish nationality. We have of the royal lineage of David. We have coming on a virgin birth. We have God with us. And then over to chapter 9, verse 6, we have, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, when I think of a prince, a prince is usually what relationship to another individual in royalty. A prince is a son of a king. So we're talking about the king of peace, and there's an emphasis here, he will be the prince of peace because he's the son of that king, but it's already established in the verse, he is mighty God, and he's already told to us that he is God with us, so we have this amazing countdown of of, of the seed of woman, Jewish, of the line and royal line of David, uh, a virgin birth, God with us, son of God, and all Mary could say is, wow! That's what she said. My soul glorifies the Lord. My soul exists to bring honor to that great God. Ladies and gentlemen, that's just a minor sampler of the amazing nature of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and the prophecies of his coming. 
She says here, the spirit, my spirit, and, and the, the tense of the verb there is rejoiced, not rejoices, not continuing to rejoice. She's actually, is this important theologically? Because uh, she says she has rejoiced in God, my Savior. She has recognized that she has already been redeemed by the King of Kings, by the great God. And she is conceding to the reality that in her life she required a Savior. That's why this is a virgin conception, not an immaculate conception. Mary was not sinless. Mary has freely conceded here that she has rejoiced in salvation already. Now, Jesus never talks about, a save, about needing a Savior or rejoicing in his salvation because he is God, sinless. But here we have Mary making this declaration. And then Mary and Elizabeth throughout this story back and forth to each other are saying how favored they are. They're amazed with awe and wonder. And she says, the mighty one is for me. The God of the ages is is for me. He's done these things for me. And by the way, holy is his name. The holy God is connecting with me. The mighty one is mine. And I am his. I can just imagine if Mary were airdropped into the midst of our culture of personal rights and entitlement. She would be saying, what in the world are you talking about? Personal rights and entitlement? This great God would deign to observe me and care about me? This one who um, is loyal to those who take interest in him, this one who is trustworthy to all those who believe in him, this one who is merciful to all those who need mercy and recognize it and believe that he alone can give it, this one who is savior and rescuer to those who turn to him, the one who is faithful and always does what he says he will do, whether people believe it or not. I just think Mary's song could be entitled, Wow! Wow! But there's more to this wow factor. I don't know if you caught it, but it's, it's mentioned a couple of times. It's, an, it's a fascinating, interesting moment that has to do with um, some womb activities. There's a womb full of activity going on here that that uh, signals a world full of implications. You know, the spell check went like completely bonkers when I typed that line out. It's like a womb full of activity and a world full of... Like, these are two words that don't exist. Well, I'm telling you, they do exist because they're right here. And there's amazing things going on here. Notice verse 41. A baby leaped in her womb, Elizabeth's womb. And, and she mentions it again. As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in the, my womb leaped for joy. It's, it's an amazing kind of thing that's happened here when you think about it because Mary and Elizabeth, they haven't had any personal contact with each other. 
Mary's been told about Elizabeth, but from all accounts here, Elizabeth hasn't been told anything about Mary. Mary just shows up. It's not like Mary texted her one day and said, hey, Elizabeth, you've got to get this. Here's what the angel said to me, and I'm going to show up in a couple of days. No, there's, there's no communication that's going to... And then it says here that, that when Mary speaks, there's a recognition from inside of her womb that something spectacular is going on. And she's now... Mary, Elizabeth is now filled with the Holy Spirit, he says here, and she prophesies. And, and she, she makes an amazing prophecy. And she hasn't been told anything, keep in mind. And she says... How am I so favored that the mother of my Lord would come to me? Now, I would have been impressed if she had said Messiah. Because the Jewish people, they were looking for their Messiah. They were always longing for their Messiah. They were always looking for that woman who was going to be the one chosen to give birth to the Messiah. They were looking for that. And they had plenty of reasons to understand the nature of the Messiah by the writings of the Old Testament, but, but few really understood it. In fact, it took Thomas a lot of years to get what Elizabeth got at that moment. Do you remember? It took until Thomas could see the nail prints in the hands of Christ. And then he said, my Lord and my God. But Elizabeth is already calling him my Lord. That's an amazing thing. To me, that's like a wow thing. That can only be explained by God. That God would would enter in a special and powerful way the life of Elizabeth and grant her this amazing insight to, to utter forth this. And not only that, but the fetus that was growing within her was recognizing the presence of the Lord. Now, the last time that Scripture had some sort of womb activity when uh, womb mates kind of got into a scrap. That was um, back in Genesis chapter 25, verse 23. Remember the story of Jacob and Esau? They had this thing going on. Now, um, at that time, there was an interesting insight that was made. And the insight was this tussle that's going on is because the elder is going to serve the younger, which is totally out of cultural whack. That's not how things are supposed to work. The young are supposed to serve the older, but the elder will serve the younger. And now all of a sudden, you have this fetus, John the Baptist, in Elizabeth's womb, who the conception that Elizabeth went through was prior to Mary's. So this fetus is older than the the fetus Jesus. And he is recognizing the fact and foreshadowing the reality that he, the elder, will be serving the younger already. And this was a this was a look forward and a look back. This was this was a, more of the, the the theological implications of all that's going on later on in the scriptures. The apostle Paul, when he's writing to the Romans, says, "You understand what was going on here." So sovereign is God. 
So much and so sweeping is the dominion of God over the destiny of man. That before even the fetus has done anything good or bad, God has already set the course. Human destiny is not based on work or merit, but upon the grace of God, His sovereign pleasure. And the reason, Paul says, when he's writing to the Romans, the reason you need to know this and understand this and get this is so that you will never, ever, ever boast about what you have in God. It's not because of your work. It's not because of your merit. It's because of God's grace. For by grace... You have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, not of works, lest any man or woman should boast. It's a gift of God. And to me, that's a wow thing. To think that um, mighty God has taken notice of me or you. It's not about your merit or your work as if God could ever be put into debt to owe us anything. Our debt is so great that we couldn't pay it. And so God had to pay the penalty himself for our debt. And then by his grace. And that's why Mary says, my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. That's why in the flip side of this story, I think, you go from this wow to the only appropriate response, which is I am so humbled at this. The I am small, humbled, be small realization comes into play here. I I think um, as you look at this and as you really pay attention to the wording that is inspirationally given to us by the Spirit of God, God's major interest is around showing himself great to those who are not and know it. God's major interest is around showing himself great to those who are not and know it. I I, I was thinking about Elizabeth and Mary shows up. You know, Elizabeth was the talk of the town. You know that, right? I mean, come on. She'd been waiting for years for, for this very event to come along, that she would become a mother. And so she's finally become pregnant. And she is the, she's the top lady in town. Everybody's talking about how great she is, how she's been blessed by God and all of this. And wouldn't you know it, Mary shows up. Now think about it, ladies. Mary shows up carrying the Messiah. It's like, wow, show off. It's like, uh, you know, I thought, I thought that I was going to be the big deal in town. And, and now you show up. Could you please go away? I mean, honestly. And not only that, but like you've got the Messiah. 
I have this guy, John, who's going to eat grasshoppers and things like that. <laughs> you, you think, like, would it, but no, 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 that's not how Elizabeth does it. She's totally engrossed with praise to God and thanksgiving that Mary would show up and she'd be a part of this. Honestly, I see in her heart the purity of a humble, humble woman. That's the mark of a humble person, you know. When you celebrate other people's good news, even when you've got good stuff going on in your own life, and you're thrilled for them, and, 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 you, and you, put the, you, you shine the searchlight on them, say, no, look at, look at what God has done for, look at what God has done for this person. I, I can't help but be impressed when I, when I see this reaction. And to me, it's quite amazing. And, and Mary, well, let, let's not forget about Mary. When Gabriel gives her this announcement that she's going to be carrying a baby and she doesn't know a man, she's not married, do you realize the scandal that she was facing? I mean, if this had been in this day and age, maybe she could have got away with it a little bit. People would have been, oh, yeah, we're, you know, it happens. But not then. She would be like totally scandalized and ridiculed. And, and, and it, had to be, it had to pop into her, her heart and her head this is going to be really tough on me. How am I going to explain this? And, and her response isn't, uh, Lord, just hide me. With, you know, can do whatever you can because I can't take the ridicule and persecution. I, I can't take the shame, you know, that, that you're calling me to in this, this great work of serving you. No, she says, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. It kind of eclipses, I think, the little bit of ridicule and persecution and hassle that we go through for ser- because we serve Jesus, because we, we, um, we represent a, a belief system in, in a, a, a great God who sent his son to die for us. Don't you think? It kind of puts humility in um, a whole different light. And then Mary goes on to sort of give a little bit of, um, of course, a prophetic statement about how things are going to unfold as time goes on. And she talks about the poor, or the rich, and the powerful, and the, the fortunate. Who, by the way, should, because of their blessings and their advantages in life, fall down on their knees and thank God and praise God. Isn't that what it should be? Shouldn't shouldn't blessings and advantages bring people to the place where they look heavenward and say, thank you, God, for what you have done for me? But instead, the rich just try to get richer. The powerful just try to get more powerful. The fortunate just try to be more fortunate. Then they host parties in their honor, celebrating their greatness, rather than looking to God for all that he's done for them. That's why I think that in this Mary's song, it brings out the, the fact that um, 
The most vivid colors to God are worn by the disadvantaged in life. The people who are poor and weak and disadvantaged and unfortunate. Those are the ones that catch his attention. And you know, there's something that leapt out at me that I actually circled in my Bible because in verse 51 it says, he has scattered those who are proud. And I wanted to stop there. I thought, I'm not proud. But then it went on to say, in their inmost thoughts. That caused me some pause. It's one thing to uh, know that you're supposed to be humble and not haughty and all of that. And it's one thing to be able to control our external reactions and behavior, right? When people come to you and say, man, you did a really great job. And you're like, it, it's, it's God. But there's a pop-up in your head that goes, yeah, but you're, you're pretty cool too. <laughs> but nobody, nobody sees that pop-up, right? They just hear you like, you know, like, you know thank you, give praise to God. It got me thinking, you know, when I read that the definition of pride. It's a little more than being able to control yourself externally and appear humble. It, it, it means you are humble. It, it means when somebody says, um, wow, that's an amazing thing that you did. You, you don't have that, yeah, I know I am pretty amazing. That doesn't even appear in your thoughts. Your thoughts are, God is so amazing because after all what in the world do we have that we didn't get from God you think about it you know even the people the people in our culture you know there's so many of them they think they deserve what they have I'm a hard worker I have worked hard for everything I got you know anybody who's ever traveled the world you meet all kinds of hard workers all over the place who don't have anything it's all about geography opportunity, advantage. <laughs> we Canadians, people born here in this country, of all people, there should be nobody in this country who takes credit for anything. We are advantaged by the amazing grace of God as to where we live, how we were raised, what advantages and opportunities we've had our physical makeup, everything we have. Now, look at I understand there are, there are people who have grown up in really horrible circumstances. I, I fully understand. That's who God is looking at. His special focus is there. The people who are disadvantaged and hurting and poor and powerless. That's what gives the church a special responsibility, by the way. We need, in two ways, we need to be helping people who are so blessed and so rich and so advantaged to consider the possibilities that their blessings are from a great God. But more importantly, we have a responsibility to show the disadvantaged the possibilities that they could have something different. Because what I like about this story is there's a reversal that's going on here. That it's, it's a reversal of eternity that's mentioned about eternity. 
Whereby, uh, she says here that you've performed mighty deeds, that you've scattered those who are proud, you've brought down rulers, you've lifted up humble, you've filled hungry, you've sent the rich away empty. She's talking about the reversal of eternity, that, that in eternity all things are going to be reversed. The powerful and the, 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 uh, the rich and the fortunate are going to be trading places with the formerly poor and powerless and less fortunate and lowly. And the message here is the present state of the lowly does not determine or define or chart their destiny. God will. And the disadvantaged are not locked into their disadvantages. That's the message the church needs to bring to those who are powerless and hurting and poor and less fortunate and disadvantaged. That that God will change your circumstances. That the gospel message is this isn't just about eternity, but the reversal is happening now. God is bringing into his family the poor and the disadvantaged. And it's our great privilege, with great humility, to show the disadvantaged the advantages that we have. You may say, you know what, silver or gold, I have none. What does the Bible say? But such as you have, give to them. What do we have? We have the opportunity to show them the blessings of friendship, that you can belong, that you're welcome and can be invited into this great family of God. There's great riches in companionship and being cared for and about. The powerless, the poor, the disadvantaged, they don't know anything about that. And the possibilities are that if the disadvantaged could just taste of the blessings of Jesus through our kindness and mercy and compassion and friendship, they might want to serve him too. That Mary of Bugtussle becomes mother of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords is a most amazing story, a most amazing thing. She didn't have to uh, fight for her rights or respect or entitlement. What allegedly people think they should have. Nobody's going to push me around. (laughs) Honestly, To be brought into the family of God. Wow. To be used to serve him. Wow. So, brothers and sisters, the best way that I think we can live out Christmas is to be amazed at God and to be humble. And I would suggest that uh, you ask the Lord to work on both of those things in your life because they're indivisible. The more you are amazed at God, the more humble you are. That's true. And I think the more humble you are, the more amazed 
about God you are. The bigger you are in your own eyes, the more the size of God is eclipsed. The smaller God is in your eyes, the bigger you have to become. It works together. So I I think um, the best way that we could um, effectively minister the message of the gospel at Christmas is to be amazed. Go big, but be humble. Be small. Go big in the sense of with God, nothing is impossible. But because of that and because of who he is, I am so small and so amazed that God would use me to serve him. May it be to me, Lord, as you ask, as you request, because you are great. Our Father, as we continue on in this weekend celebration of who you are and sending forth the message, Father, I do pray that you would cause our hearts to swell in amazement. But at the same time, may our heads shrink. No haughtiness, no pride. How could we be proud of us? We're proud of you, Lord, because you are great. I pray that you might help us to grow in that grace so the disadvantaged can be seasoned by the blessings of Christ for eternity, I pray in Jesus' name.